Hi, everybody, and welcome to Life TK, the podcast where we talk to women writers, editors, and journalists in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond about the jobs they did when they were in their 20s. My name's Amanda Voitis, and I'm your host. My guest today is Rubina Madan Fillion, who is the Director of Audience Engagement for The Intercept. The Intercept is a really smart news site publishing the type of fearless journalism we need in 2018. I read it a lot because Sean King, the journalist who writes about race, Black Lives Matter, and the alt-right as a columnist. Rubina runs social media, works on search engine optimization, analytics, newsletters, podcasts, events, membership. It's a lot. Her job is to grow the number of people who are engaging with The Intercept, make The Intercept's content more shareable, and deepen its relationship with readers. This is the first time Life TK is dipping into audience engagement, and I'm really excited to hear how Rubina got her start especially since she's worked at places like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. We're going to hear about a job in her 20s that gave her the Sunday scaries. You know that feeling when you're dreading the work week that's to come? An aha moment when she realized she was interested in alternative storytelling. How a comedy show led her to go to graduate school at Columbia University and the hardest career decision she ever made. Here's Rubina. I knew I wanted to be a journalist for a long time, more than more than half my life. Um, when I was 16, my the, the the way I figured it out basically is that my journalism teacher had us invite in a journalist that we knew into our class. I was taking this journalism class mainly because I wanted to work on the school newspaper as an editor, and it was a required class to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was one of the very few people in the class who didn't know any journalists. I grew up in Evanston, Illinois, which is a big town for that, it's where Northwestern is, an excellent uh, journalism school. So I ended up making a presentation rather than writing a journalist because I didn't know any. Yeah. <laughs> but most of the other students invited in somebody that they knew. And each, each person each day came in and talk, just talked about their jobs. And I had never considered journalism as a career path at all. You know, my parents, they were kind of like in the sciences. Um, both of my parents have PhDs, my mother in physics and my father in finance. And um, my sister was, she was going into computer science, and I always assumed that I would end up going into either computer science or electrical engineering. That's like the decision I was trying to make for myself when I was 16. Wow. Yeah. And uh, after, after I saw all of those different people speak, I realized that this is what I wanted to do. That's exactly the kind of job I wanted to have. And I was petrified to talk to my parents about it because I figured they would not be supportive. But it turned out that my father... Um, asked me, he said, well, if you could do anything for, for your job, what would you do? And I said, I would be a journalist. And he said, okay, well, let's look at great journalism programs then. Aww. And I was pleasantly surprised by that. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm an Indian, Indian immigrant myself. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not a typical career path. That, you know, it's not an approved career path, I should say. Yeah. So I was, I was pleasantly surprised by that. And I always had to have a backup plan with that. I was I had three different majors in college. Um, I started off in, as a business and journalism major. Then I switched to econ and journalism. And then I switched to 
political science and journalism. So I just couldn't figure out like what I wanted my backup to be Yeah. if this whole thing didn't work out. And my parents always wanted to make sure I had a backup. So when I told them I was going to switch from economics to political science, my second major change, um, my father's response was, okay, so if this journalism thing doesn't work out, you could always go to law school rather than business school. <laughs> so I said, okay, yeah, <laughs> that's fine. That'll be my backup plan. Um, but fortunately for me, I was uh, I was really lucky with how things went for me in, in, in college. I had the support of the head of our department, our journalism department, who recommended me for a couple of internships. So I got to intern at the Austin American Statesman when I was 20 on the editorial board, which was an incredible experience. Oh, wow. Because... It was so much. <laughs> it was so much than I ever expected an intern would do. Like I was literally writing an editorial for the Austin American Statesman pretty much every day that I was there. Um, I mean, it was it was going through an editor, and, but it was it was being listed as, as being like the opinion of the newspaper, um, the, the newspaper's editorial board, which was amazing. I mean, I never expected I had that experience. Yeah, at that and age. You're like twenty, right? <laughs> it was a tremendous experience, and only made me fall more. <laughs> For journalism, and it was it's interesting, too, to start out writing editorials as opposed to reporting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but then I was a reporter. Uh, I interned for the Atlanta Journal of Constitution and then started working for the Gwinnett Daily Post, which is a small newspaper in Georgia, um, about 100,000 circulation. And I was an education reporter for them, covering a school system of about 150,000 uh, students. I was 21 at the time. And uh, I didn't have a whole lot of reporting experience. It was really just trial by fire because um, I was putting out, you know, anywhere from one to three stories every day on the school system and competing against some very high-level um, education reporters. And it was, it was tremendously um, difficult, but it was also, you know, pretty fulfilling to be the person who, who did this. Yeah. I mean, to go from opinion to reporting must have been the switch. And then you also have competition. Like what was the biggest challenge there? Do you remember? It was very stressful to have to put out a newspaper every day with that small of a team. Yeah. Um, we had any, we had six or seven reporters total the entire oh, time wow. I was there. And we were putting out a daily newspaper. So it was, it was really difficult. And, uh, you know, entry-level journalists um, in, suburban Georgia don't make a whole lot. Yeah. And for the amount of work that we were all putting in, it was a very difficult job. And I found a kind of dreading the work week a lot of the times because it was just, it just was this endless churn of words that you had to put out. I kind of realized, I think at that point already, that being a reporter wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do for the rest of my career. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really think that much about the other careers that were available in journalism at that time. But what I had discovered in my internships was that I was really interested in alternative story forms. And back then, alternative story forms were basically things like Q&As and bullet lists and, and different ways to tell stories, photo essays or videos. Mm -hmm. um, but I wasn't that interested in just writing um, stories myself and, and having that be all of it. I was really interested in the packaging. When I was at the Gwinnett Daily Post, I was watching um, the Colbert Report one day when it had first come out, and he cut to a section, a fake sort of Good Morning America sort of a show, mm -hmm. who made a really inane comment, like a journalist who made a really inane comment, and then she said, 
I have a master's from Columbia Journalism School. I can't, you know, I can't believe I have a master's from Columbia Journalism School. And it was a joke about her being, um, you know, kind of this fluffy reporter who had this, this prestigious degree. Yeah. Um, but I realized <laughs> something happened in my head and I decided right then that I was going to go to Columbia Journalism School. And I don't know exactly <laughs> what it was. I, I knew I needed to get out of this job and yeah. perhaps I needed to get out of Georgia as well and expand my possibilities. So I, I decided in that moment I was going to apply. When I got in and I got, I, I got in uh, with a pretty substantial scholarship as well, which was a huge relief for me because I wasn't, um, I hadn't saved up a whole lot <laughs> when yeah. I was a, an entry-level reporter. Going there was really one of the formative years of my life. I made many of my best friends, um, and I, I'm still very much in touch with them. Um, it was good because it let me try out a lot of different things. You know, I took a photography class. I, I learned a lot about building my own, my own website. Mm-hmm. I had come in with a magazine concentration, which was really, you know, funny in retrospect, because <laughs> I basically thought, I, I'm, not, I'm not that into the whole daily grind of having to turn out words and words and words every day for a daily newspaper. And I was dreaming about writing 3,000 or 10,000 word um, pieces. But it was really in grad school that I figured out that wasn't really what I wanted either. Yeah. So and it's, it's such a, you know, it wasn't that long ago. It was 11 years ago, but it seems like a bygone era that you could just enter and say, I'm just going to write long form magazine pieces. I still hear some Columbia students say that, by the way. Yeah. Um, you know, there are certainly some extremely talented people who can do that. <laughs> but, yeah. But just to go to grad school with the idea that this is what your career would actually be, it seems naive in retrospect. Yeah. Um, but it was it was less naive back then than it would be it would be now, I suppose. Yeah. But I, I did I did spend a lot of time developing digital skills there. The graphics class, I actually had to I had to kind of beg to get in and switch places with somebody else to get in because it was it was completely full. It was one of the more popular classes. And it was taught by this brilliant uh, New York Times graphics editor, uh, Hannah Fairfield, who is a, a great professor and a wonderful mentor. And she um, liked my final project that, that I did for her class. And she asked if I would be interested in possibly freelancing for the New York Times as a graphics editor. And it seemed like you know, everything had kind of come together for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it didn't happen right away. I actually had a summer in between where I was living in Philadelphia and working at the AP as an intern, um, reporting on tourism and, and, and immigration and some other issues. And, and it's funny because I really wanted to work at the AP after the intern, but they had, had told all of us interns that they didn't have anything available. So it was, uh, it was while I was in Philadelphia that I um, twisted my knee and I was on crutches for most of my internship. Oh gosh. And so, um, which was just crazy. I, I came up to New York during that time for the AP intern summit. While I was there, I sent an email to the graphics director at the New York Times to tell him I was in town and ask if I could swing by the office to talk to him about this possible freelance gig. I walked out of the AP building where I had just talked to the intern coordinators who told me that there probably wasn't going to be anything for any of the interns after the summer. So I was really disappointed that I was going to go meet the New York Times um, graphics director. I got in a cab. I was, I was still on crutches. So I hobbled over to a cab on crutches oh, no. and um, got in. 
the cab, it was so hot that day, it was July, that the cab broke down. And I was now running late <laughs> for my interview there. This sounds like a typical New York interview. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got another cab. I, you know, I, I called up the graphics director and told him I was running 15 minutes late. He was very understanding. So I showed up late to the interview and hobbled over to his office. And it was just sat down with him for a few minutes. He looked for my portfolio and he asked when, when I could start. I was 23 at the time. I ended up being kind of a permalancer there, I guess is how you describe it. I was working there 40 hours a week as a graphics editor, um, really, you know, putting together um, graphics that would appear in all parts of the uh, national and metro sections. It was great. I mean, it was, it was completely different than what I expected to be doing as a journalist before journalism school. But um, I, I actually enjoyed it more than reporting. I enjoyed the idea of translating data into into a way of enhancing the story and telling stories in different ways, like just like the alternative storytelling I'd mentioned earlier. Yeah. And it, it, was, it was just like a really interesting challenge to do that. It had used, it used so many parts of my brain. I mean, it's was, it was useful to have the reporting background for sure, mm -hmm. um, but also to, to be able to represent it visually and also the math aspect of it. I mean, keep in mind, I was almost an, <laughs> an engineer. So. Right, yeah. <laughs> What I really like about what you've told me so far is that, you know, at that first kind of small newspaper job, you didn't feel like this was quite the right fit. And then grad school, you wanted to do magazine, but like that didn't seem quite right either. But it didn't stop you from just keeping going until you finally found the right type of journalism for you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something a lot of us experience in our 20s. Sometimes it can feel a little bit I don't know, it can just feel like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to find like the perfect office or, you know, the niche for my work. Did you ever feel like that? You know, it's funny. I don't think I've ever had a five-year plan. Yeah. I, I really could not predict the way that my life has gone. Mm -hmm. When I was in, well, when I, when I was reporting in Georgia, I read a book called Quarter, The Quarter-Life Crisis, and I was convinced I was going through one because I could not figure things out. I was so <laughs> unhappy, yeah. but I couldn't really figure out why. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I knew I needed to leave my job, and I figured that I just liked college more than I liked working, and that was my whole thing, which is also one of the reasons why grad school appealed to me. Yeah. But of course, that it wasn't that. It was just that I hadn't found the right thing yet. I don't know if, if having a five-year plan would have ever helped me as opposed to made me feel more frustrated mm -hmm. because if, if I had a five-year plan, I would have always been a little bit unhappy with what I was doing then and thinking about what I was doing in the future. Whereas I feel like in most, for most of my life, for most of my career, I've been really appreciative of what I have mm -hmm. and been able to go with the flow with whatever the next step would be. So for example, I mean, that, that kind of epiphany, I'm going to go to Columbia Journalism School. It's like, okay, like that wasn't a planned thing, um, nor was this New York Times graphics editor gig that I had, nor was really, I mean, the, the next step, which was to go to the Wall Street Journal, I wasn't, I wasn't somebody who never actually thought that I would work at the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. That wasn't something that had been a goal for me growing up. I, I always kind of assumed I was uh, mediocre and wouldn't be able to work oh, in those no. kinds of places. So, so I never even aspired to it. I'm torn on the subject of the five-year plan. When I started Life DK, one of my goals was to figure out, are successful journalists and writers successful because of some 
innate quality they all share or because of circumstance. And pretty quickly I learned it's both. Tenacity and talent and the right opportunities all have to be there. On the one hand, I agree with Rubina. If you make a plan, if you admit what it is you'd like most in the world and it doesn't happen, you'll feel so disappointed in yourself. On the other hand, there's that old saying from her friend Emily Gould from episode two. If you don't have any direction, you'll go any place anyone tells you. It might seem kind of basic, but I found this article from Fast Company called Yes, You Should Have a Five-Year Plan by Samantha Cole, and she suggests sort of a modified five-year plan. Write down, what is your wildest dream? What are you willing to do to get it? And what gives you an edge over the competition? It's that last question I really like. What makes you uniquely positioned? It's something that people answer when they write business proposals, and I think if you can answer it, you're well on your way to figure out a strategy to get to your five-year goal. The um, graphics director at the Times recommended me for these other jobs when my contract ended. And um, I'm really lucky about that because I loved working at the Journal. I was there for seven years. It was a wonderful set of colleagues, very hardworking. And I got to figure out exactly what it was that I did want to do there, which wasn't actually graphics. Um, I did enjoy working on graphics as well. But it was um, when I got into the social media side that I, that I really figured out that I'd found what I was looking for. And the, the, the way that happened, basically, is that I, I created a Twitter account for WSJ Graphics, which was just as me writing like 10 tweets a day with our best graphics, pulling out some interesting statistics, pulling out you know, some aspect of the story that might be, um, might be good to share to the wider community. And I also started a Pinterest page for WSJ Graphics as well. And especially Twitter really appreciated uh, the graphics page because they hadn't really seen anything like that before. This was just how I was spending my day at the beginning of my day job. And then, yeah. and then I would transition to working on graphics like I normally do. But I realized that that was actually my favorite part of the day. My boss, who had encouraged me to do this because he realized that I was using my personal Twitter all the time, <laughs> He also sent me to this digital journalism at Dow Jones week-long training, which was a great training that the WSJ does, where it's basically, you know, about 8 a.m. to 6, 6 p.m. or 8 p.m., depending on the day. You're going through all this cross-training from all the different departments and hearing from the heads of mobile and social media and video. Wow, yeah. By the end of that, it became really clear to me that I needed to figure out something other than, than graphics, and that thing was joining our social media team. I'd been using the internet for a long time as a method of communication and finding like-minded people. Mm-hmm. Now it became about actually being able to do that at work and building community at work. And that was really the source of an ideal job for me. And in fact, the way that audience engagement social media roles have changed to be much more based around analytics and SEO that's been really good for me because that has been able to use the other side that um, I didn't really get to use in reporting. Um, that's the much more analytical side. So I, I feel I feel really lucky that I was able to kind of stumble into this more so than any other time in my life. I feel like I'm doing something that I'm really interested in, where I'm constantly learning from other people, and it's it's never boring, which is incredible. I mean. That's really all you can ask for in a job yeah. is to be happy and fulfilled and never bored. <laughs> Engaged. Yeah. And it's in your yeah. job title, engagement. 
It is. <laughs> it's a good job. <laughs> yeah. Um, what would you say was like the biggest challenge of your 20s? I think it was really figuring out where to go from here mm-hmm. because because I got my start being a permalancer at the New York Times, then I worked at the Wall Street Journal, both very reputable organizations that people aspire to work at for much of their lives. Uh, I, was, I was 24 when I got when I got hired at the Journal and 23 when I was permalancing at the Times. I really did not know what to do after that. I think part of the reason I stayed at the Journal as long as I did is because I couldn't think that any other place would be a better option for me. It's kind of ironic that I ended up leaving it for a digital startup. Those were really the places that I was curious to check out um, while I was at these bigger news organizations because I liked the idea of the flexibility and the ability to build a place from the ground up. And that's something I've gotten experience with The Intercept and feel very lucky to experience. I switched to The Intercept when I was five and a half months pregnant. Though it happened after my 20s, I'd say that's probably the most difficult period of my career. Having been at the journal, I'd, I'd been a graphics editor for four years. I'd been a social media editor for three years after that. I really wasn't sure exactly what I would do next, other than maybe I would get a better job title, but it would still be doing the same thing. Right. There wasn't like a, a trajectory for me there. So when I got um, recruited by The Intercept and, and by First Look Media, I was really interested in that because, you know, I'd, I'd always been curious about what it would be like to join a media startup mm-hmm. and watch it grow into a larger organization and help it along its way and be there for a lot of those big decisions. Yeah. That's something that I've really appreciated about this job is being able to expand out from what I started off doing into all of these different areas. Yeah. So at the time that I was interviewing, for The Intercept, it was uh, for, for First Look initially and then, and then for specifically The Intercept, it was a very long interview process. Mm-hmm. And I found out I was pregnant during that process. Uh, when I finally got the job offer, I told them that I was four months pregnant. And their response was, to their credit, congratulations. Of course, we'll figure out a way to make this work. That's and that great. tells you a lot about what a company yeah. is. It, they were tremendously supportive of me the entire time. And they really didn't have to be. I mean, I was only there for a few months before I went on maternity leave. But it's it's one of the reasons that I'm as loyal to The Intercept and First Look Media as I am is that the way that you treat people during those difficult times shows who you are as an employer. Yeah. But that was it was tremendously difficult to leave the journal. The journal was so comfortable for me after seven years. I'd grown up there. I often say I'd grown up there because I spent most of my 20s there. But to leave there, it was it was heart-wrenching. I was, I sometimes, you know, felt like when I walked into the journal offices that I could have shown up in pajamas or something. That's how comfortable it was. Yeah. Uh, but I knew also that I had stopped learning as much there. And that was difficult for me. So, Taking joining the intercept was a huge risk. It wasn't even I wasn't hundred percent sure I made the right decision until after the first day was over. You knew but, after the first day. <laughs> like after the first day I was, it was like, okay, this is the right place. Oh, but before good. that I'd been I'd spent so many sleepless nights and I was, you know, second trimester pregnant, thinking about like what have have I made a horrible mistake? Yeah. <laughs> 
right? Because you don't really know until you work at a place. It's true. It's totally true. Yeah. I went through kind of a similar situation. I left a job at Time Inc. and took one at Newsweek in October. And I don't know if you've wow. been reading the news about Newsweek. Yeah. But, so I've had the opposite outcome, it sounds like, of what oh, you God. experience. I'm sorry. I'm it's sorry okay. to hear that. That's awful. At all. But I think, like, the lesson is it's impossible to know. Mm-hmm. I Googled everything I could. I didn't know. Um, so I think the lesson is even if you make a bad move, you'll figure it out. And it's not it's not life ending. It's not the end of the world. Yeah, yeah. That's true. But I'm very happy that it worked (laughs) out for you. (laughs) As I'm telling Rubina here, I recently took a job at Newsweek. And a few months after I started, the company went through and is still going through what I'm going to spin and tell you is a public image challenge. You can do a quick Google search to see just how great of a euphemism that is. So yeah, my job at Timing ended, and then the job I took immediately after, it might also maybe be ending. It's not ideal, and I've struggled with how much of my professional life to reveal to you on this podcast, partly because of non-disclosure agreements I've had to sign, and partly because, well, I just feel stupid for finding myself in the same situation. I'm basically the Margaret Mead of magazine layoffs at this point. But I think I've found a productive way to take my experiences with job uncertainty and turn them into something insightful and helpful and usable for you all. And I'm working on it, and I'll let you know more once it's ready. What is the biggest piece of like professional advice that you would have for a woman in her 20s? I guess the most important thing I would say is to keep learning, mm-hmm. no matter what. And not just in school. If you want to have a career in audience engagement or in mobile or product management or in journalism, any sort of <laughs> journalism, you need to be constantly reading and seeing what other people are doing, not with a sense of competitiveness, but just with a desire to implement it into your own work, to keep up with industry trends. That is so important. And if you stop learning, you're going to become obsolete so fast. Your skills are going to evaporate. So that's, that's incredibly important. The other advice for, um, for young women, the most important professional decision you could make is also the most important personal decision you could make, which is who you choose to have as a partner. And I realize that there are people out there who will not choose to have a partner, which is perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. Um, to say that the most successful uh, women that I, I know are either single or have a supportive partner because nothing can drag you down more than an unsupportive partner. Yeah, that's really true. That is the best decision that I made is, is um, marrying my husband. There's no way that, that I would be, I would have had the same career path if not for him, you know, his unwavering support for me. It, it's really uh, distressing for me when I see extremely smart uh women who could have very promising careers and have to scale back because their partners will not step up for them. Yeah. And so I, you know, it's, I often think about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, actually, she has a wonderful essay in the New York times and she has a book about her husband and she has a line in there. That's like, you know, I have no doubt that I wouldn't be a Supreme court justice if not for my husband. Because he was the one to cook dinner for their kids. He was the one 
someone who really helped, read through her her briefs and everything and made sure that everything was okay. He was 100% behind her all the time. Yeah. So I think about her a lot. I mean, I, uh... If you want to read this piece, it's called Ruth Bader Ginsburg's Advice for Living. And there's a really sweet section that's a tribute to her late husband, Marty. Here's a snippet. I have had more than a little bit of luck in life, but nothing equals in magnitude my marriage to Martin D. Ginsburg. I did not have words adequate to describe my super smart, exuberant, ever-loving spouse. Marty coached me through the birth of our son. He was the first reader and critic of articles, speeches, and briefs I drafted, and he was at my side constantly, in and out of the hospital, during two long bouts with cancer. And I betrayed no secret in reporting that without him, I would not have gained a seat on the Supreme Court. When I was pregnant and trying to switch jobs, and also simultaneously trying to apartment hunt and move, it just makes you realize all of those experiences that you have that are difficult, and you get through it anyway. Yeah. It happened again and again with me, um, with pregnancy and with motherhood, after switching jobs. Well, pregnant, when I came back from maternity leave, I went out to lunch with my um, with my boss and, and my um, my colleague. And she mentioned that the Online News Association conference was the following week in Los Angeles. And she said, oh, would you like to go? I really feel like... Uh, we should rep- we should grab some, some representation there. And I thought about it. And I said, yeah, you know, I, I think I would. Um, let me just check with my husband. Um, I was uh, less than four months postpartum. I'd just come back to work. Yeah. I was pumping and breastfeeding still. So I spent, uh, I talked to my husband about it. And to his credit, he said, you know, we're a can-do family. Oh. So and, and it was a cross-country trip. So there's a lot of logistics to plan out with that. That experience and many of the other ones that have come after that, like such as when I was asked to teach Columbia, my daughter was nine months, uh, she, she was only nine months old. And uh, I almost said no, because I just did not think I could do it. I wrote back to the associate dean and I said, I work full time, I have a nine month old baby, I'm not sure if I can do this. Yeah. And then I talked to her and I decided to say yes which was when and for for that period of time is very much like the only things I could think about were like work class baby, work class baby yeah, over yeah. and over and over again. But I did it. And then I did it again. And it just made me realize that there's been so many times in my life. Self, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. And then I did it anyway. Yeah. And that gives you a lot of confidence for the next time. It makes you realize that you're capable of much more than you ever thought possible yeah physically and emotionally thank you thank you so much shirabina for sharing her story if you're considering a change i hope her anecdotes about deciding to apply for grad school And switching to a really comfortable job at the Wall Street Journal to one with a little bit of uncertainty at The Intercept will inspire you to just go for it. And what Rubina said about how if you want to be a good journalist, you have to always be learning. I'm such a big believer in this. I think it can be anything from signing up to webinars to curating a Twitter list of people who are doing the thing you're doing or doing the thing you would like to be doing so you can easily follow them in their work. One example of this that I did recently is that I worked with a social media consultant to make a plan for life TK. I felt so vulnerable doing this coming from a print background, 
But I did it, and I learned so much. Okay, follow Rubina on Twitter. Her handle is at RubinaFillion, and The Intercept is at The Intercept. And while you're at it, follow me at LifeTKPodcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.